And as she got there, she took an apartment overlooking the Wailing Wall. And every day when she looked out, she saw an old Jewish man who was praying vigorously. After observing this for about a month, she finally had enough courage to go down and ask him some questions. And so as she approached him, she introduced herself. And she asked, you come here every day to the wall. How long have you done that? And what are you praying for? The old man responded, I've come here to pray every day for 25 years. He says, in the morning I pray for world peace and then I pray for the brotherhood of man. He says, I go home and I have a cup of tea and I come back in the afternoon and pray for the eradication of illness and disease from the earth. The journalist was amazed by this and she says, how does it make you feel to come here every day for 25 years and pray for such things? The old man looked and calmly replied. He said, well, to be honest with you, sometimes I feel like I'm talking to a wall. You know, and as I heard that story, I'm certain that uh, many of us can relate to his sense of frustration when it comes to prayer. After all, who hasn't wondered at some point in time, does God really hear my prayers? And if he does, why doesn't he answer the way that I want him to answer? Some of us may even believe that prayer is a waste of time. After all, we reason, you know, God is God and he's going to do what he wants to do. And who are we to change his mind? And so in our continuing study in the book of Daniel, we're going to come to a chapter that gives clear instruction concerning prayer. And it's going to help us in many of our struggles in this area of our relationship with God. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to discover, as we look at this particular passage, uh, this chapter, we're going to discover the power of prayer. Specifically as it's evidenced throughout the, in the life of this remarkable man of God, Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 9, we're going to look at uh, basically a couple of verses to start. And that's in Daniel chapter 9, in verse 1, we read these words. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Important to our understanding of Daniel chapter 9 is an examination of history as it relates to the phrases found in verse 2, if you want to look at that with me, specifically where he says, as he was looking at the books or observing the books or gaining understanding from the books, he saw that was revealed the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophets. It says, for the completion, and here's the key phrase, of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. The phrase introduces us to an important doctrine that we find throughout the Bible, and that's the doctrine of the discipline of God. You know, it's something that we don't want to talk about much today, and you don't hear very much about the the discipline of God, because we like to dwell on the loving side of God, and that God just cuts everybody a break, and there's nothing that God thinks worthy of disciplining, and we know that that's not true. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that as a father loves his own son, so God loves his own people. And that when they step out of line, it's time to step in and discipline them to make sure that we go in the right direction. You know, there's two ways basically we can go in life. One is the way that seems right to man and its end is destruction. And the other is God's way, which will never have any consequences if we obey the word of God. However, God does give us the freedom to choose. And it's fascinating that God allows that as part of his providence. But the reality is very simple. And that's this. God allows men and women to choose. We can choose to obey God or we can choose to disobey God. We can choose to accept Him or we can choose to reject Him. God gives us the freedom to do that. And what's fascinating about it is is that God also says this, as far as His own children are concerned, 
that God loves us, and therefore, if we're out of line, He steps in to discipline us. Now, not only does God do that on an individual basis, but which is fascinating, as we'll see, God also does it on a national scale. That God does judge nations, and He steps in and judges nations. Now, what we need to do is turn back to the book of Leviticus to have an understanding of what's taking place in this particular passage. Because as God disciplines individuals, we find that He also disciplines nations. And in the book of Leviticus, God gives clear instructions as to the consequences that the nation of Israel could expect if they got out of line and violated the commands of God. And in Leviticus chapter 26, we're introduced to what's looked at as what's known as the five cycles of discipline. God basically warned His people and said, look, this is the program. He says, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will step in and discipline you because I love you and I don't want you to get too far out of line. So every time you make a step that's out of the boundaries of acceptable behavior, I'm going to step in and I'm going to do something about it. Now, the problem is, is that some of us are very stubborn. God calls us stiff-necked people. You know, we get out of line and God steps in and He tries to get our attention and we still ignore Him and we continue to go the direction that we want. And as a result, as we'll see here, these five cycles of discipline were, were established by God to try to warn the nation of Israel in their disobedience, hey, you better get back in line because the further you go down this road, the worse it's going to get. And He begins to explain that in Leviticus chapter 26, starting with, let's say, verse 14. It says the first cycle of discipline we see in verses 14 through 17. He says this. Basically, if you'll notice, the first word is but, which indicates a strong contrast. The first half of the chapter deals with the blessings of obeying God. Now he's going to go into the, dis, uh, the, the uh, consequences of disobedience. He says, but if you do not obey me and you do not carry out all these commandments, if instead, there's choice, you reject me, he says, in my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, he says, I in turn will do this to you. He says, I will appoint over you a sudden terror that has to do with confusion or a sense of psychological confusion. I will appoint over you a sudden terror. He says, in consumption and fever that shall waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. He's saying, not only will you be disciplined psychologically or mentally, I'm going to discipline you physically. He says that you will have a sudden terror, the consumption of fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you shall sow your seed uselessly, for your enemy shall eat it up. You're going to go to work, you're going to sow in the fields, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to work hard, and you're going to have anything to show for it, because your enemies are going to come in, and they're going to take everything that you did. He goes on and says, And I will set my face against you, so that you shall be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one's even pursuing you. There's that sense of fear in their life. The first cycle of discipline we see here has to do with psychological terror, has to do with uh, physical ailment of some sort, has to do with working hard, not having anything to show for it. All those things are going to happen if they don't obey the commands of God. Now notice this in verse 18. Here's a further warning. And he says, if also after these things, here we go, the second cycle of discipline. He says, if that doesn't get your attention, we're going to step two. Now how many of you as, as parents ever sat down and have a similar conversation with your children? Basically, here's, here's the rules. This is the way it's going to be. And if that doesn't get your attention and you want to go further that direction, now we're going to go into the second stage of discipline. He says, and also, if you don't, if after these things you don't obey me, uh, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. It'll be complete. 
And I will also break down your pride of power. I'm going to humble you. It says, I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze, meaning that he will not bless the efforts of their hands in an agricultural community where they go out and sow. God says, basically, he's going to seal up the heavens so that there's no rain and the ground will not produce any produce of the works of their hands. He says, I will break you I will, and your strength shall be spent uselessly. Here we go again. For your land shall not yield its produce and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Pretty plain. And if that still doesn't get your attention, he says, if then you act with hostility, here's the third stage. If you act with hostility against me and are willing to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. And I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which you shall bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your numbers so that your roads lie deserted. And, if, and then he goes into the fourth stage. I mean, notice how God is very patient with people. He warns us, he warns us, he warns us of the consequences, he tells us even what to expect, and we continue to go in our disobedience. And he continues to try to get our attention. And he goes to the fourth stage and says, and if by these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility. Notice this, I want you to catch something that's very important about God and the compassion of God. He warns us step by step in our process of disobedience. He says each step along the way and the power of the conviction of the Spirit of God for those who know God and have put their faith and trust in Christ and are born again, the Bible says, the Spirit of God lives within us. In each step of disobedience we take, we willfully ignore the voice of God, the Word of the Lord. God says, don't do it. And we say, I think I'm going to do it anyway. God says, I'm telling you, don't go that way. And you say, well, you know what? I don't see any danger yet. We keep on walking and God says, and if... And if by now, the third stage of discipline, you still haven't caught on, some of us are like that, aren't we? You know, still haven't got it yet? Well, then let's go to the next one. He says, and I will act with hostility against you, and I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. I will bring upon you a sword with which to execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence among you, so that you shall be delivered into your enemies' hands. And when I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven, and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts, so that you will eat and yet not be satisfied. It's like, hey, have you caught on yet? Have you, have you got the picture? And he goes on to the fifth cycle of discipline. It says, yet if in spite of this... You do not obey me, but act with hostility against me. Then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you shall eat the flesh of your sons, and the flesh of your daughters shall you eat. You realize that what God is saying is that the enemies, it will be a military conquest, and he's warning them, if you do not repent of your sins, if you do not confess and agree with me, God says, if what you're doing is wrong, and if you don't turn from that, then this is inevitably what will happen to you. He says that one day you will even eat the flesh of your own children. Now, to the Jews, that would be absolutely preposterous because there's no way that that would ever take place. They were very family-oriented. For God to warn them and say, one day you will be eating the flesh of your own children, you know, to the Jews, that's absolutely ridiculous. That will never happen. It's exactly what Jesus said to Peter, too. One day you'll deny me. And Peter said, not me. I'm right here for you all the way to the end. Jesus said, no, before this night's over, you're going to deny me three times. I'm starting to pick up on a pattern here, and that is God's a little sharper than us. I don't know if you caught that yet, but I think it's important that we make that very clear. And, uh, and he says, this is what's going to happen in 586 B.C. That is exactly what was fulfilled. It was written by the prophet Jeremiah. 
Can you imagine in AD 70 AD the same thing happened? And we know historically from the accounts of Josephus, the Jewish historian, that at Masada, the people there ate of their own flesh to try to survive. He says, and, you, and destroy your cattle. And he goes on and he says, and you know what? Further, not only that, I then will destroy you in verse 30. I will destroy your high places. I will cut down your incense altars and heap your remains on the remains of your idols. For my soul shall abhor you. I will lay waste your cities as well, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your soothing aromas. You know what? Don't be offering any sacrifices to me, because at that point, I'm just going to turn my back on you. You've turned your back on me long enough, I'm going to turn my back on you. Don't try to even offer sacrifices, because they won't be acceptable in my sight. It says, and I will make the land desolate, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled over it. Now listen, you, however, I will scatter among the nations. And this is the part I want to concentrate on because it has a lot to do with what we're talking about. He says in in Daniel chapter 9, in verse 33, he says, You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. He says, Then the the land will enjoy its Sabbath. All the days of the desolation, there's the term that we saw in Daniel 9 too. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. It's important for us to realize that God's program was very clearly outlined to the people. And the program was this. For six years, the nation was to be industrious. They were to work hard. They were to go after it. They were to plant. They were to sow. They were to harvest. They were to store up and save. For the seventh year, when God says the seventh year, you will not do anything from an industrious standpoint. The seventh year, Sabbath actually has to do with rest. On that seventh year, you will rest. You will not work. You will rest. Because on that seventh year, during the course of that seventh year, your land will lie fallow. And not only that, but the important fact was this. And you will learn to trust me and continue to trust me for all of your needs. The seventh year rolled around and the nation of Israel said, Man, we've produced a lot in six years. Just think what we can do in the seventh year. And they continued to work at the expense of the word of God and deliberately disobeyed God. And they did it not just for one Sabbath year or for two Sabbath years or for three Sabbath years. You know how long they did it? They did it for 70 consecutive Sabbath years or a period of over a course of 490 years. They continued to ignore the command of God. Very clearly, they disobeyed the word of God. Now, what's fascinating, and we studied it when we looked at Daniel chapter 5 as to the certainty of the judgment of God. What's fascinating about God is is that God is very patient. He is long-suffering. He is patient. And oftentimes, some of us, because we do not experience immediately the consequences of our sin or doing what is wrong against God. So we don't immediately experience the consequences. So what do we start to believe? That maybe God didn't really mean it when he said it. Maybe that's not really the word of God. I'm doing this behavior, activity, whatever it is, and I'm not experiencing any consequences. So guess what? I guess that we must be misreading God's word. That's not really what he meant when he said it. And so we don't experience immediate consequence. So we are deceived into believing we can continue to do what we're doing. The nation of Israel, they continue to go. Seventh year came around. They didn't rest. They produced and they had another great year. And then, you know, seven more years or six years go by again. And the seventh year they come to it and go, hey, we got away with it last time. Maybe we misread it. And they continue to do it. 
And God, in his great patience, allowed them continually as he tried to warn them through these cycles of discipline. He tried to get their attention, 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 and they just weren't listening. You know, the light was on, but nobody was home. And so God eventually decides in Daniel chapter 9, if you want to go back to that, what's fast, or wait, actually, stay in Leviticus for a second. Because what God decided to do, and what we read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, is that God decided that his program or sentence would be a very simple one. For each year, or Sabbath year, that the nation disobeyed God, then God would sentence them to be oppressed by their captor, in this case, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Each year they disobeyed, each year for their disobedience, they would spend one year in captivity. They disobeyed for 70 Sabbath years, they were now in captivity for 70 years. That was God's sentence. Now, as this relates to Daniel 9, look, look at uh, Leviticus 26 again as we continue to look at this fifth cycle of dif- discipline. Verse 34 says, Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. Isn't that interesting? Well, then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. The land will lie fallow. And you know why? Because you won't be there to mess it up. And if the land could shout, it had been shouting Hallelujah. Yay, we get a year off. Not one, one, 70. It goes to verse 40. Look now down to verse 40. It says, And if they confess their iniquity, here we go, and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, says, I was also acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies, or if their uncircumcised hearts become humbled so that they make amends for their iniquity. Notice that. If their uncircumcised hearts, meaning they're out of fellowship, if they'd finally become humble and cry out to God, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I'll remember also my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham as well. I'll remember the land. For the land shall be abandoned by them, shall make up for its Sabbaths while it is desolate without them. They, meanwhile, shall be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them so as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, for I am the Lord. It says, These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. Now go back to Daniel chapter 9 and we'll have a very clear understanding of what's going on and also the importance of the power of prayer as we will see it demonstrated in the prayer of Daniel throughout this chapter. In Daniel chapter 9, we're looking at the circumstances that are surrounding the prayer of Daniel. We read, in the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, it says, Amid by descent who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord that was given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Again, we find a wealth of information in the opening verses of this particular chapter where we know that Cyrus, the king of Persia, is in control and has placed his uncle, who also happens to be his father-in-law, in charge over conquered Babylon. This man, Darius, uh, we're told, is the son of Xerxes. Now, Darius is a title, uh, such as what we learned about Antiochus or uh, Ptolemy or Pharaoh or king or czar or whatever. That's his title. But his name is actually Cyaxares uh, II. So as we look at this, he is the king of Media or the last of the Median kings by descent. 
If you remember from, our, from the prophecies we've already learned that the Medes and the Persians rose up, that ultimately the one that came up second would be greater than the first. And so Media was basically uh, folded into the empire of Persia and then Persia would take over. So he is the last of the kings of the Medes. And then, this, then Persia will take over after that. And Cyrus was, Cyrus was the king of Persia. So as we look at this, there's this wealth of information that's given to us and it's given to us for a reason. Now Cyrus conquered the Medes. He came up with a game plan. What's interesting is to make certain that the Medes never gave the Persians any problems anymore, we see here that Cyrus had Darius with him at all times. And there was a good reason for it, because he didn't trust them. The Persians didn't trust the Medes, and so what they said basically was Cyrus said, hey, you're going to come with me on the conquest. So they go out and they make this conquest, and not only do I not trust you, that I want you to be with me, he took it a step further, and he married his uncle's daughter, so not only is he young, his uncle, it sounds like a country western song. Uh, not, not, only is his, not only is he his uncle, but he's also his father-in-law. So he doesn't trust him, so he brings him with him. And he's trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do here to make sure that the Medes never raise up, rise up again and give the Persians a problem? And he came up with a game plan. When they went into Babylon and they conquered Babylon, uh, that was at the point where Cyrus said, I got a game plan. And guess what his game plan was? He said, uh, you know what, hey, I'll tell you what, Dad... Um, why don't you stay here and I'll leave you in charge of Babylon? Now that's a, now think about this for a moment. Is that not like the best game plan for any son-in-law on how to get rid of his father-in-law? That's like, hey, I got an idea. Uh, I'll give you that kingdom over there. You just stay out of my kingdom over here. Interesting, isn't it? It's good counsel for anybody who's a father-in-law. I was studying this kind of going, oh, wait a minute, here's some good counsel here. This is a side note. This is free. So I'll just throw it out to you. But basically it's this, you know, as a father-in-law, if your child, your son or your daughter go out and they end up having their own family, there's a, there's a wise counsel to say that, you know what, the time of your involvement as a father changes to what may be now a friend and a counselor. You are no longer in charge of their kingdom. You've got your own kingdom. And so basically what Darius to help him do is come up, what, what Cyrus helped him do is come up with this biblical concept of, hey, you know what? I'll tell you what, Dad. You stay here and you take care of your kingdom and you leave me alone and I'm going back over here and I'm going to take care of my kingdom. And, uh, you know, we can interact whenever, but on the other hand, hey, you know what? There's a, there's a principle there that I kind of like. And so basically that's what took place here. You know, he's out of sight, so he says, hey, you stay here. Now, fascinating because as we go back to the historical record, Cyrus to ensure loyalty not only appoints Darius, the son of Xerxes, to be in charge, but he also appoints two other people. Guess who one of the men is that he appoints? Daniel. He appoints Daniel. And you know why he appoints Daniel? Because he knows he can trust Daniel. Daniel has been there working for the Babylonian Empire for approximately 67 years. His reputation preceded him everywhere that he went. We know from Daniel chapter 6, what do we know about him? He was a man of integrity. He was a man of excellence in what he did as far as administrative affairs were concerned. In him, there was no corruption. There was no deceit. He was faithful in the discharge of his duties. And his reputation preceded him. Guess what happens? Hey, the new people come in and they say, Hey, I want a guy like that in our administration. There was one other thing he had going for him that we can't minimize. And that was he had the hand of God on him too. Now, Cyrus may not have known him at that, known at that time, but certainly as he got to know Daniel, he certainly saw that the hand of God was upon Daniel. But God also worked in the heart of Cyrus and said, hey, you know what? Whether Cyrus knew it or not, I want my man Daniel to be where he's going to be. Now, the second guy he points into this position was a guy named Gabrias, who was the general 
who was the general of the Median army that went into Babylon in, in Daniel chapter 5 and basically led the conquest of the Chaldeans that particular fateful night when the handwriting was on the wall. So these are the people that he left there. And it's fascinating as we see this that Daniel again finds himself in a position of responsibility in another kingdom. Now notice in verse 2 of Daniel chapter 9. It says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books or understood by the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of God through the prophet Jeremiah. It says that I understood by the books. Now, can you imagine being in Daniel's position? Throughout his lifetime, he's seen some incredible things. His people are taken captive. They're dragged to Babylon from Jerusalem. Uh, they're there now over a period of 60-some years. He sees the dreams that God gives him, the visions that God enables him to be able to interpret. He goes to Nebuchadnezzar and tells him that you, Nebuchadnezzar, that great head of gold, you're the first of the great kingdoms that are to come, but there's going to be three more that follow you. Not only does he live to see that particular vision or prophecy fulfilled because he's saying one will come after you that will rise up after you. And he sees the Persian Empire come and take over Babylon, which seemed un unbeatable, undefeatable. He's looking at that. He's going, man, we've been dragged into captivity. I've been here serving this other kingdom. This kingdom, God says, is going to come to an end, which it did in his lifetime. There's another kingdom that will rise up and it was fulfilled exactly as God said. As he's looking at everything around him, I've got to believe, like us, in many, in many cases, he was confused as to what was taking place. And that confused, uh, confusion led him to do something that brought clarity to his life. And you know what that confusion led him to do? It led him to study the Word of God. It led him straight to the Word of God. I wonder sometimes as we look at the events around us that take place, we see the changes in the world. We see the things that take place on election days. We see the things that are going on all around us. And, we, and, and there's a certain sense of confusion. We have problems in our marriages. We have problems with our relationships. We may be struggling in business. We may be struggling uh, with financial strategies and which way to go and which direction to turn. And there's a whole bunch of confusion in our life. We may be confused as to our relationship to God. We may be confused someone's sick in our family or somebody's dying. What happens after death? What happens when I die? We may be confused about a lot of things in life. And the question for you at this time is the same question that I ask for myself is this. Where do I turn for clarity? Where do I turn for answers to these questions that I have? And I learn much from the life of Daniel. Because the Bible tells us that Daniel in his confusion and in his bewilderment turns to a study of the word of God. He doesn't turn to the magicians and he doesn't turn to the astrologers and he doesn't turn to the wise men of the world. He doesn't turn to the psychologist and the psychiatrist and he doesn't turn to human institutions, nor does he turn to human opinion. But he turns specifically to the word of God and in the word of God, guess what he finds? Clarity. He finds understanding. He finds that God's word is truth. He finds that God's word is sufficient to the questions of our mind. He finds that God's word gives us direction. He finds, as God's word says that it is, that it's a lamp unto his feet and a light unto his path. He finds that God's word is sufficient for man. And if we don't need to hear that today, I don't know what people ever did. God's word is our sufficiency. We need nothing else. We need to recognize that and understand that. We need to turn to the word of God and his word first and foremost to find the answers for the confusion in our lives. 
And not only should we turn to it, but once we turn to it and we observe what it says, then we should act accordingly upon it in a positive way. But we have volition, which is choice. We can turn to the Word of God and God can give clarity and tell us what we need to do in the situation that we're in. And we have a choice at that point, whether to confess our sin, agree with God, and repent and turn from it, or continue in our disobedience. We have volition, we have choice. And as the people of Israel continued in the cycles of discipline, each step along the way, all they had to do was turn back to the Word of God. God would have gave them clarity what they needed to do. And that was what? Stop sinning and turn from your sin and turn to God and trust Him again and be obedient to His commandments. And guess what? You won't experience the consequences of your life. I want you to notice something that's very clear in the text, but not so clear in our culture, and that's this. That Daniel had an acute awareness of God's Word. He understood the Word of God. He'd been studying the books. I like that. He'd been studying the scriptures, plural. Not just the prophet Jeremiah, which we'll get into, but he studied the books, the scriptures, plural. He was diligent about his studies. Now, I think exactly at that point is where many of us go wrong. And that's what? We're not very diligent, are we? We're not diligent in our study of the Word of God, and I know that because many of us don't even bring our Bibles when you know you're coming to a Bible study. Duh! Hey... You know, if you're guilty, you're guilty. Think about it for a second. How diligent are you about the study of God's word? God commands us to be diligent about the study of the word of God. If it's not convenient, we don't understand it and we get a headache. What's the first thing we do? Go, oh, close the book, walk away from it. Boy, glad that study's over. You know, we need to be diligent upon the study of God's word. And, and, And Daniel dug into the books which was fascinating. Not only Jeremiah that we see, but through Jeremiah he learned that there was a problem. The problem was what? The discipline of God, the desolations of Jerusalem. And he learned this. It was going to last for 70 years. Turn with me in your Bibles to the first passage that I believe that he studied and had a good understanding of in Exodus chapter 23. Notice Exodus chapter 23, starting with verse 1. We're going to do a diligent study of the books. Daniel had access to the Word of God as he knew it at that time in the Old Testament. He had the books that were available, and he went to the bookshelf to get the books. I got a problem. We need to get an answer. Guess where he ran? Right to the Scriptures, and he started to look, and he started to study. I'm going to challenge you, if nothing else that you hear today, that you hear that one thing. That you will not have clarity in your life and you will continue to be confused in every area if you do not dedicate or determine to be a person who is diligent about the study of the Word of God. We are in a lazy culture. We don't want to do anything that requires work. That's why we like feel-good churches. We want to come in, they read a verse, and you know what? And then they don't even talk about the verse. They just talk about whatever will make you feel good. What's troubling you today? Just share that with me and I'll try to make you feel good. Hey, God may not want you to feel good. He may want to afflict you and your comfort level if your comfort is not based upon the Word of God. He may not want you to feel good. And I also believe this, 2 Corinthians 1, I was reading the other day, I believe this, that God only comforts us for the person, not just for us to be comfortable, but that we would be comforters of others who are going through difficult times. This isn't just about us. God comforts me for the purpose of comforting others who are going through difficult times. That's the purpose of his comfort in my life. Do you understand that? That means you get involved in the lives of other people. 
Exodus chapter 23, as we study diligently the books, we see that you shall not bear false witness. Don't join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. There's one of the laws. You shall not follow a multitude in doing evil. God specifically is referring to rioting here. Nor shall you testify in a dispute as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. You know what he's saying? Hey, if the crowd says to say one thing and that's not truth, God says don't turn after the crowd, but you've got to stand on the truth and just tell it the way it is, even though you're pressured by people around you. Isn't that a fascinating study of what's going on in our country today? The polls say that you need to go this direction, but truth says you need to make a stand. So what kind of leadership do we have? We'll find out. We'll find out whether they're committed to truth and committed to justice, or they're just committed to go the direction of the way the wind that blows. And then they run out in front and try to pretend that they're leading us somewhere. That's nonsense. That's not leadership at all. Sometimes if you're going to be a leader, you've got to tell people what they don't want to hear, but they're going to tell them anyway. Why? Because it's truth, and the truth sets people free from nonsense that takes place in their life. It says, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in a dispute. Meaning what? You know what? This is, this is a, a, a definite um, indictment towards socialism. Notice what it's saying. Hey, you know what? You just don't go after rich people because they're rich and because they are blessed by God with material things. You, you hold that against them and pervert justice so that you take care of the poor. It's, you know, this isn't about Robin Hood. This isn't about going and stealing from the rich to give to the poor. You know what? Some people are poor because they're meant to be poor because they're experiencing the discipline of God. And you know what? And that's not to say that every poor person is poor because they're lazy, but a lot of poor people are poor because they're lazy. This is the great era of awakening that Lyndon Johnson, Johnson ushered into our country in, in, the, uh, in the early 60s. You know, socialism. Hey, if you're out working hard and you have a lot and we don't think you should have that much, I want to give it to you who aren't doing anything so that you have something and isn't that the great American dream? Hey, that's nonsense. That violates every biblical principle that you ever find as far as uh, work is concerned, as far as uh, the blessings of God are concerned. That's socialism. That's all that it is. And God points it out. It says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away from him, return it to him. Oh, good. Guess you won't miss it. Uh, you know, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helplessly under its load, you're going to refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due as your needy brother in dispute. Keep far from a false charge. Don't kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. And you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of justice. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Remember that? Hey, I comforted you when you were a stranger. Now you know exactly how strangers feel. Now you offer the same comfort to them. Now here's the point. And you shall sow your land. Not that those weren't points too, so don't, don't miss that. And you shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow so that the needy of your people may eat and whatever they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Duh. You know, what's interesting as we look at this, we need to recognize as we see this, what was God's plan? For six years you're going to work. The seventh year you're not. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. When it's hard to grasp, just trust God and do what he says. What part of this don't you understand? One of my favorite things in talking to my kids or anybody is this. If I say no, what part don't you understand? The N or the O? You know what I'm saying? It's like, what was so hard about that? No. What was the, what was the difficulty in grasping that? Was it the N that bothered you or the O? Or was it the combination of the two together? You know, no, that's the way it is, you know, and this is the way God is. It's, you know, when you read this, let me ask you a question. What part of this don't you understand so far? They all understood it. They just didn't want to obey it. Leviticus chapter 25. Here's another one of the books that he looked at. Leviticus 25, verse 1. Then the Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. You're going to wear your Bibles at. Let's go. Come on, you've got to keep up. The fact you're so slow, that troubles me. Come on. That's not a good sign either. Get the tabs if you have to. 
We got stuff to do. We can't be here all day. That class behind us won't let us. Otherwise, I don't have a problem with it. Leviticus 25, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. The Lord spoke, don't miss that, the word of God. Speak to the sons of Israel, say to them, When you come into the land which I will give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Okay, guys, what part of that don't you understand? That was the Word of God. Very clear, isn't it? Look at chapter 26, verse 33. Let's go, keep going. Verse 33, chapter 26, Leviticus, You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword among you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath, which we saw. All the days of the desolation while you're in the enemy's land, then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. Turn to Second Chronicles ahead a few books, chapter 36. Second Chronicles 36, starting with verse 15. Don't miss this. And the Lord... Come on. I'm running out of time. I've got a whole bunch of stuff to do here. And the Lord, the God of their father, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Notice that. The word of God is given to God's people out of the motivation of a compassionate heart as far as God is concerned. God loves us. That's why he has got this book into our hand. God loves people and he wants them to have the truth. That's why missionaries go all over the world to give them into their hands the word of God so that they can have truth as to who God is, the identity of God, what God expects, how to come into a relationship with God, how to be saved from their sin and the consequences of it, how to avoid judgment of God, how to turn their hearts and their souls to Christ so that we can have the forgiveness of sin. God loves people and His compassion has motivated Him to give us His Word so that we are without excuse before a holy God. We have His Word. And what's fascinating about it is that we don't even look at it sometimes. We don't even study it. We don't even turn to it. We turn everywhere else. We'll go spend two fifty an hour to go to some psych that's going to tell us what all our troubles are. Why we're all messed up because of our childhood. Being locked in a box somewhere. Or, or, or you know, you had peanut butter every day for school lunch. Or you had to walk in the snow both ways uphill. You know, with, with, you know, with, with those little baggies in your boots. And I had them with rubber bands around the top so snow didn't get down and deep inside. And that's why you're so troubled. That's why you're so messed up. You know, it's nobody fault. I mean, actually, it's not your fault. It's everybody else's fault. God says, no, it's not. You're messed up. And it's your own choosing. It's your own fault. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. We're all messed up. So don't be blaming everybody else. We all are accountable for our actions and for our choices. God says he holds us accountable to exactly that. Man's been trying to bass the buck from the very beginning. God, you know what? I, I, I was doing great till you gave me this woman. And not only that, but think about how hard you make it. I wake up, she's naked yet, of all things. I mean, you didn't make it easy, God. She did it. Uh, no. Well, then, uh, you did it? Uh, no. Who did it? I did it? Oh, you're holding me accountable for my actions? Well, isn't that a unique thought? Verse 16. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. Hey, underline this and don't miss this. Go home with this one thought, okay? Please don't miss this. Until there was no, what? Remedy. If you don't grasp anything else in our time together today, 
May I suggest that you grasp this, that you underline this, that you embrace this, because if you believe this and you apply it properly in your life, your life will be drastically changed by what God can do through you. And that is simply this. When Bible doctrine is despised, when Bible doctrine is mocked, when it is scoffed, and ultimately when the Word of God is rejected, underline this, there is no remedy. There is no remedy. In other words, there's no quick fix for the problems that we get into that I call self-inflicted wounds because they are needless. They are not trials that we consider joy, my brethren, when we encounter. They are the direct result of disobeying the Word of God. And if we continue to disobey God's Word, listen, there is no remedy. There is a price that will be paid. If an individual or a couple in their marriage, if a family, if a business, if a church, or if a nation continues to reject the word of God and choose to violate biblical doctrine, there is no remedy for the inevitable consequences and pain. God's justice is then in motion and will not be stopped. Listen to me. If we lie, if we cheat, if we steal, if we perform acts of violence due to outbursts of anger or whatever, in our drunkenness and drug addictions and sexual immorality, whether it be adultery or homosexuality or fornication, having sex outside of marriage as a single person, or rape or any other sexual immorality, all of it will result in consequence and pain. There is no remedy. If we are unequally yoked in business, there is no remedy. I have a friend who's a godly man, been involved in his church for years, on the board that was there, uh, knew the word of God. He goes into business with a friend of his that he meets in business. He is more the administrative kind of guy. The guy that he's going to go into business with is the sales and marketing guy. Everything on paper looks great. Here's what one brings to the party. Here's what the other brings to the party. They all sit down. He calls me and says, Chuck, I'm thinking about forming this business. What do you think? First question he asks is the same question I ask anybody. Hey, is, is this guy a Christian? Does he believe in the Lord? Does he come to know Christ as a Savior? Is he born again? Whatever term you want to use. But is he a Christian by God's definition? And is he a man who is willing to use the Bible as his course of direction in his life? Well, he's not a Christian. And what are we going to discuss from now on? The question I have for you is simply this. And what fellowship does darkness have with light? And the obvious answer in the Word of God is obviously none. You can't be unequally yoked. You can't be going in the same direction if one's going another way and the other is supposed to be walking following the Lord. But he goes and he does it anyway. A few years later, he calls me and says, Chuck, I've got to meet with you, man. I've got a major problem. My business is totally screwed up. What's the matter? Well, I'm about $150,000 in debt, and my partner just walked from the business. Really? Did you underline in your Bibles, there is no remedy? Did you underline that? Please underline that. When you get home and you look in your Bible, underline it then.
but there is no remedy. You understand what I'm trying to say here? There's a certain point in time where there is no remedy for our rebellion against God. I have people come to me and say, hey, I want to get married. Hey, great. Is your future spouse a Christian? No, but I just, we're, just, we're just so compatible. No, you're not. No, you're not. Don't even think about it. Well, we're just going to date until he becomes or she becomes a Christian. No, you're not. That's nuts. Because what's going to happen along the way? Something's got to give. What's going to happen along the way? I'll tell you what's going to happen along the way. The person who takes a firm stand for the Lord and says, boy, you know what? I made a huge mistake. Is going to be torn apart emotionally because they allowed themselves to go in a direction that was not right before God. There is no easy fix for rebellion against God. Do you understand that? We live in a culture today. There is no easy fix for our rebellion against God. But we have hope. What's our hope? During the process of discipline, at any point in time, they could have confessed their sin before God, agreed with what God had to say, and repented and turned from it. And who knows how far along they were. But you know what? God at that point would have stepped in and said, If you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There's no remedy. See, what's the problem with the world today? We sin and rebel against God, then we experience the consequences, and then what do we do? Then we pray that God does what? Removes the consequences from us. Let me tell you something. If you are in the midst of rebelling against God and you're experiencing the discipline of God and the consequences of God in your life, may I suggest that you change your prayer life? Because if you pray that God will change His mind about something that is clear in His Word, guess what you'll be feeling like? You'll be feeling like you're praying to a wall. God's not going to answer your prayer. God's not going to change His mind for you. Lord, I want to marry a non-Christian, but I really want you to bless it. Hey. Ain't getting through. God, this guy brings everything to the table, man. It's going to be a great business. I need to go into business with him. He adds everything that I don't have. You know what? He's a marketing guy. He's a genius. He's a strategist. He's everything I'm not. I'm just an administrative guy. God, I want you to bless this sin. Come on up here. Let me demonstrate. <laughs> and then what do we do? Then we say, well, God, you're not answering my prayer. He already answered it before you prayed it. Look at the Word of God and then be obedient to what He has to say. That's what's wrong with most of our prayer life, isn't it? We're praying for God to do things that He just flat out ain't going to do. He's already told us. What's fascinating about this is this. Daniel could have wasted a lot of time during the 70 years praying that God would somehow shorten the 70 years. But guess what? He wasn't going to. Now, he could be praying that God, in the midst of this discipline, I want you to use me for your purposes and for your glory. But you know what? He wasn't changing his 70 years. Why? Because it was determined by God. It was set by God. Nebuchadnezzar, in the midst of his insanity during seven years, could have prayed any time that he wanted during those seven years that God would change his mind about the seven years. But you know what? The seven years were set in stone by the Word of God. He could pray that God would somehow use him in the midst of all of that, which is a wonderful prayer, which is kind of fascinating. But what's interesting about it is, is that God does not answer prayer that violates His Word. Do we catch that? Do you grasp that? Do you understand that? Let me give you an example from uh, a situation we're going through with Matt, you know, the, the, the kid that's in prison. You know, I'm praying for God's mercy in his life. I'm praying for justice as well. 
Because God knows the truth. I'm not even sure I know the whole picture. And, and, and it's not really important as much as it is that God's will will be done. And I'm praying whatever that is, is. Whatever happens, happens. And I'm praying that God would be merciful, that God would be just, because He knows all the facts and He knows the truth. But let me just tell you something. Once that's determined, then there's no sense praying about it anymore. Then you change gears. You start to pray that God would use them. You start to pray that God would minister to them. You start to pray that in the midst of whatever his sentence is, that somehow or another he can be an instrument of God's righteousness. But once God's determined it, it's done. You remember the sin of David and Bathsheba and the child that they conceived during their adulterous relationship? It said that David prayed to God and he fasted and he was in mourning because the child was sick. And the Bible says that the child then ultimately died, that God chose to bring that child into his presence. David got up that day, he washed, he dressed, he went on with the business of the kingdom. And the people came to him and said, what's the deal? I mean, how can you not be in mourning anymore? Your child is dead. Oh no, I was in, I was in mourning and I was, I was requesting of God and in supplication and prayer with thanksgiving. And I was in mourning and sackcloth and ashes because until God finally determined what it was that he was going to do, then I had some input into the matter. But once God decided that was it, there's no sense praying about it anymore. It's a done deal. It's over. It's done. Now it's time for me to move on with my life. And hopefully I've learned from this, and hopefully as I turn from my sin, and as I learn from the situation that I'm in, that God can use what I went through to His glory and to His praise and to His benefit, and just use me, Lord, because I'm a servant. We don't have any time. We ran out. But we know what's so great about the Word of God. It's always there. We can study. We come back next time. It's a wonderful thing to do every week, isn't it? This is awesome. And it's exciting to do it. But what's interesting that I want to throw out to you is this, because... Okay, let me, let me throw some things out to you. What do we learn from all this? In case some of you missed some things. If and, it, and if and since it is so. Okay, number one. God's word is sufficient for all of human need. God's word is our sufficiency. Period. Do you lack understanding as you go to the Bible? Then you better examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. There were years where I tried to read the Bible and it was nonsense to me. I didn't understand any of it. And the reason was very simple. Jesus said, until now you've asked for nothing in my name, which means simply this. I never knew him. And so I gave my life to Jesus Christ and believed in him for the forgiveness of my sin. The Bible says that I had no chance. I had no clue to understand the word of God, the will of God, because God's word is written for who? For his children. And to as many as believed him or received him, speaking of Jesus Christ, to them he has given the, the, the privilege to be called children of God. John chapter 16, we're told that God gives us the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer so that He'll instruct us. He will teach us the things of God. He will convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will let us understand and know the mind of God because who can understand the mind of God but the Spirit of God? If you don't understand the Bible, there's a good, there's a good chance, a very good chance, that you've never given your life to God, that you've never believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you've never humbled yourself and asked Him to come into your life and believe that He is the only sufficiency that's available for your sin and the consequences of it. Have you received Christ? There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if you have, then you can go to the Word of God and you can begin to understand because the Bible says if any man lacks wisdom, what? Let him ask of God who gives generously and above reproach. He'll never ridicule you for not knowing. He knows you don't know. That's why He's given us His Word. That we're to be diligent in our study of the Word of God. I want to challenge you to make a commitment to become people who immediately turn to the Word of God for answers or to godly people who can turn you to the Word of God instead of the philosophy and the opinion of men. God's Word is sufficient for our every need. 
And when you turn to it and you read it and you see what it says, that you would be committed to becoming obedient to the Word of God, to be doers of it, not just hearers only, so that God can bless our lives as we walk in obedience with Him, so we can avoid the consequences of disobedience. If you are wrong and you are here today and you are rebelling against the Word of God in an area of your life, I am going to challenge you right now, if God's Spirit isn't already doing so, and that is to confess and agree with God that what you're doing is wrong. That you don't trust God. That's why you're doing it your way. And it's time that you trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding, but in every way acknowledge Him and He'll set your path straight. That you trust Him today. That you walk in obedience with Him. That you repent from your sin, meaning you turn from it. Some of us get uncomfortable because as you sit here today, and it's only the Word of God, because I don't even know you. But if you're sitting here uncomfortable, I'll tell you why. Because the Word of God and the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word of God is convicting your heart and it's separating the bone from your marrow and, it's, and it judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Only God knows really what you're going through and He knows what you're doing. Don't try to fool Him because He can't be fooled. Confess your sin because if you do, He's faithful and He's just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Repent and turn and walk away from sin and walk toward God. And develop a relationship with God that will help you to avoid the consequences of sin. Because men and women, there is no remedy for those who despise the Word of God. Father, we just thank you for this time to be together. We just praise you in Christ's name for your wonderful Word that you've given us motivated by your compassion. Everything that we need, the sufficiency of of man is found in your Word. God, help us to become men and women who trust in your Word with all of our heart that we don't lean on our own understanding or the wisdom of men, which is foolishness in the sight of God, but we trust you, that we lean on you, that we acknowledge your presence in our life. And God, we just praise you as you protect us from all the pitfalls that come with the temptation and the snare of sin and entanglement. God, we just pray for our nation today that we'll become men and women, that there'll be leaders who will rise up and that they'll turn to your word and that they'll be obedient to the truth and not just look at the polls and the things that go on around us, but they'd be sold out to you and to your word and give direction in a hopeless situation that seems at times, but yet with you we always have hope. At any time we can fall on our knees and confess our sin, and you tell us that you'll forgive us, that you'll cleanse us, you'll pick us up, you'll dust us off, and you'll move us in a direction that's positive in our relationship with you and in our ways with even ourselves and others. God, we just thank you that there's always hope as you hear our voice. We thank you for the power of prayer that we'll see in the life of Daniel, a man who, as he studied your word, was motivated to immediately go to you. God, we just thank you and praise you in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.